lift you high in this place today. Uh, Lord, we cannot just press on to the next part of the service, Lord, after singing these eternal life-transforming truths that we have, Justin. Lord, I, I pray right now that those would not just be words on a slide. Those would not just be fancy tunes that we sing to, but each one of those songs would be an anthem of our heart. We're coming back to the heart of worship. We scale it back just to the heart of worship where it's all about you, Jesus. It's not about lights. It's not about fancy instruments. It's not about that we're just scaling it right back to you, God. For you long, the man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So God, find hearts that are hungry for you today. Find hearts that are longing for you today. Lord, help us to love you more today. Lord, help us to desire you more today. Help us to want to want you more today. Father, I pray as we open up your word now, we would humble ourselves under your authority. God, and we wouldn't be those people that just look in a mirror and then forget what we look like. But Lord, as we look into scripture, you would press it into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. God, and we would desire to be changed, eagerly coming under your conviction, coming under, Lord, your refreshment and the comfort that comes through repentance, God. Lord, I pray for that now. Lord, whatever anxieties have happened this week, whatever things we've brought with us from the workplace or home or anything else, God, I pray we'd leave them at the foot of the cross right now. Remove distractions from this place. Encourage the weary. Strengthen the weak. Give hope to the hopeless. Lord, give truth to the deceived. Lord, may it be so. May it be so. And guard my mouth from error, Father, and say what you want to say for the glory of your awesome name. We pray all these things, and if church, if you agree, say amen. Amen, amen. Church, you may be seated. You may be seated. Well, praise the Lord, church. Today is, I mean, it's always a very exciting Sunday around here. Praise the Lord. Never just another Sunday. But um, today is a really special one in that uh, we are kicking off our second sermon series of the year. Two weeks ago, we finished our... Uh, about four month long journey through First John, verse by verse, word by word. And now we are moving into what is the greatest um, message ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. Amen? Amen. All right. And so this is a series entitled Blessed, a Journey Through the Beatitudes. Now, reminder, just to recall, why are we moving into this now? Everything's got a purpose. We don't do random around here. Okay, uh, we're, our theme for the year is foundations, foundations, where we are shoring up the foundations of our faith and, and, and being reminded and being anchored into the fundamentals that God promises to build his church upon. All right, there's a lot of competing ideologies and ideas out there of what the church should be and how it should grow, but there's only one thing that the Lord comes back to. And uh, this series that we finished on 1 John is focused on the person of Christ, being the Savior of the world, the only Savior of the world, the Son of God. And, and it focused on our pursuit of Him through faith, love, and obedience. But now, in this five-week series, in the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes, we are going to be focusing on the posture or the character of Christ that we as Christians are called to be imitators of. We're moving from the external acts of obedience in our pursuit of Christ to the internal attitudes of the heart that are the source 
of the true character of our faith. Now you say, wait a second, why, why is this important? I mean, why focus on the heart? I mean, isn't Christianity just about doing, 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 doing? Uh, no. Why do we focus on the heart? Because here's the problem we face today in society and in the church So often we evaluate character, Christ-like character, based on the work of one's hands instead of looking at the posture of their hearts. We evaluate character more in our society today based on the work of one's hands instead of the posture of their hearts. And, And what is epidemic in churches today is the issue of elevating one's deeds for Christ while minimizing or even excluding the posture of their heart before Christ which ultimately determines whether those deeds are even faithful to Christ or not. We elevate the deed to the forsaking of the heart. In short, if I could say this, this epidemic is nothing short of this. Competency always trumps character. That's an epidemic, loved ones. Competency is trumping character, and the result of this is nothing less than it is hurting the church and not the picture of true faith, the character of true faith that Christ has called his people to. And here we see, right at the start of Jesus' ministry, in the very first part, the very first part of the greatest sermon he ever preached, he doesn't focus on the work of one's hands. That's the Pharisees' job, and they were doing a great job in and of themselves to do that. But he goes straight for the posture of the heart. And now think about this. Out of everything else he could have said, he goes right to the heart. Out of everything he could have exhorted them in, he goes to the heart. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? Because this is where everything else flows out from. The heart controls the hand. And what you put first is always going to order the rest. This is why Jesus goes after the heart right here. And he continually circles back to that from this point on. Because the heart always displays what we truly value. Notice this, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And by the heart, we're not talking about just this muscle in the center of your chest that pumps out blood. The heart, the depiction of the heart, is the very center of our well-being. Okay, Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, the mind thinks, the hands act. Always. So what's going on out here is a depiction of what's happening in here. You might be able to fake it for a while, but it's not going to last. Okay? Let's get some context here. This book is written by Matthew, who was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. It was written in about 50 AD. About 50 AD, Matthew was a tax collector. Jesus calls him out to be one of his apostles. 50 AD, the Beatitudes that we're focusing on. We're not going through the whole Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go through the first 12 verses. And the the Beatitudes are part of this. The Sermon on the Mount is all the way Matthew 5 to 7. And it is one of the greatest and clearest teachings of Jesus and what he wanted his disciples to be and do. It's one of the clearest teachings of this. And so what are the Beatitudes? You hear that? You've probably heard that before. And so let's look at You'll see it on the screen. Here's the definition. Here's what beatitudes means. The Latin term for beatitude means blessed or happy. Doesn't seem to do it justice. But that's the Latin term, blessed or happy. These are attitudes that believers are to be, that means to be living out, or to have 
that God approves of and promises his blessing towards. These are every one of these things. You say, okay, what does God promise to bless in this situation that you're facing right now? Go back to the Beatitudes. What does God promise to bless in this trial? Go back to the Beatitudes. What does God promise to bless in this decision I'm making? Go back to the Beatitudes. It's what he always promises to bless. And in essence, the eight Beatitudes summarize the entire Sermon on the Mount. They summarize the entire thing and describe what Christ himself said the character of true faith looks like. And as such, what the character of every true Christian should be. I love this. I love this. I said this week, they are nothing less than the greatest standard by which every Christian is to measure their lives by. That's why we go back to them. They're the greatest standard by which every Christian is to measure their lives by. It's kind of a high call. Just saying. I love how Paul Carter, he's a pastor here in Canada, and he puts it this way. They are a description, and increasingly, as they grow in their salvation graces, they describe the kingdom attitudes and actions that characterize its citizens living temporarily as ambassadors in a fallen and hostile world. Love that. That is a great definition. I'd take a picture of that if you're not writing that down. All right? Increasingly and immediately, we're to grow in these. The Beatitudes are the values of the kingdom of heaven. You say, what does heaven value? It's right here. What does Jesus value in this situation? It's right here. He makes it so clear. And which we will see, these are a complete It is a complete and radical reversal of the values of the society in which we live. It's a complete, radical reversal of what society says to value. Jesus is like, no, value this. Society says to value that. No, value this. It's a radical reversal. You'll see it very quickly. Why? Because these eight beatitudes are otherworldly. They are not of this world. And as such, the only way you and I can live them out is by an eternal power that is not in this world, and that is through Jesus Christ. If you honestly, loved ones, I'm going to sit this right out of the gate. If you leave this sermon today, and if you go through this series over the next five weeks leading up to Easter, and you say, I'm just going to try harder to live out the Beatitudes, you're going to be discouraged, you're going to be deceived, and it's not going to last. You can't, you and I can't live these out on our own strength. They are otherworldly values, and you will see why very quickly. Their focus is on godly character. Notice Christ. Here's Christ coming. The first sermon he gives, the greatest exegesis of what the character of true faith looks like, and he focuses on character and not competency. That gives me hope. That gives me hope. The heart of a person and not one's conduct, primarily our ability to do things. He focuses on our character. It was literally the greatest vision casting sermon for what the life and character of a follower of Christ is to look like and completely countercultural. Now, now, I want to clarify something. I want to clarify something. This is very important. Jesus is not saying this in these Beatitudes that people need to live this way to be saved. You live this way and you're going to be saved. That's not what he's saying here. All right, He's saying Christians will live this way because they are saved. Big distinction. Don't go out here saying, okay, if I just walk in humility, then I'm going to be saved. It's impossible to walk in humility if you're not saved. Okay, If you are truly saved in Jesus Christ, you will live increasingly in this way. Again, not perfection, but perseverance. 
That's so important. The only way a person can live like this is through the power of Jesus Christ in them. And you're going to realize, as I realized very quickly this week, I think on Tuesday afternoon, didn't take long, we can't attain these things on our own merit or effort. It's impossible. And just as Jesus knew this was the greatest message the disciples needed to hear at the start of their ministry, we too must be called back to the heart. He's calling us back to the heart today, loved ones. He's calling the church back to the heart. And here we see the first two beatitudes we must continually devote ourselves to if we are to grow in godly character increasingly in our lives and see the blessing and glory of God in our lives and in his church. Okay, ready for some heart surgery, loved ones? I'm ready, I'm ready. You ready? Here we go, let's stand to honor the authority of God's word as we dive in. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. And if you do not have a Bible with you, make sure you raise up your hand right now. Our ushers are coming forward. We want you to follow along. Raise up your hand. Our ushers are going to come and put one in your lap. Thank you, ushers. So patient with me. Thank you. All right, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And all God's people said, Amen. You may have a seat. So succinct, so clear, so powerful. What we see first off here is that to grow in godly character, you must live with increasing recognition of Christ's authority. To grow in godly character, you and I must live in increasing recognition of Christ's authority. Look at verses 1 and the first part of verse 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So easy to just skip over that and say, give me to the good stuff. Oh, that's amazing. Right there. What happened in those two verses? The crowds here, the word for crowds means a multitude of common people. So who were these crowds that Jesus was going up on this mountain to preach to? Uh, People from all over Galilee region in the north of Israel. These were people who were familiar with Jesus' ministry. They had heard about this guy that just came on the scene and was preaching with the authority of God, but they had not made a commitment to him. They are not his disciples. Okay? The crowds, the multitude. Now, let's get some context. Where's the, where's the Galilee region here? You'll see a map here of Israel. Now, the, if you just scan your eyes down to the bottom of that screen, that larger body of water is the Dead Sea. Okay, and then that river that's flowing, it actually flows down from Galilee, but Dead Sea, and then that's the Jordan River going up on the east side of Israel, and you get to that second largest body of water, that's the Sea of Galilee in the north. Okay, and so this is the area, the geographical area, where we are. And as Jesus is seeing this multitude of people uh, gather around him, he heads up a mountain to teach. I love this. Now, I used to live in Israel, and I spent a lot of time in Galilee, and uh, 
I think eight weeks or whatever it was, six to eight weeks living on Tiberias, which is right around the sea, right on the Sea of Galilee. And I just wanted to give you, I thought it was helpful to give you a picture of some of the context to put it, how beautiful this is, but also why Jesus chose this spot. All right, next picture, Alexis. So here, that's the Sea of Galilee, and you see all of these places. Now, the, the Capernaum there is on the northwest corner of Galilee. It's right at the top, just to the left. You'll see Capernaum, and, and the Mount of Beatitudes is just a, literally a stone's throw away from there. Now, let's get a look at what this is looking like from the lake. If I'm on the lake and I'm in a boat, there's the Mount of Beatitudes right there. You start to see why Jesus chose this place. It's flat, it's open, all right? He, everything he does is intentional. So here he is, and where all those trees are uh, is where Jesus was believed to be sitting on that. So let's get a, another view uh, from the top of the mountain. That's what it looks like overlooking the Sea of Galilee there. You see Capernaum's over here, there's the Mount of Beatitudes, and then over to the right is the Sea of Galilee further moving towards Tiberias. Gorgeous, but strategic, but strategic. All right, why he chose this place. Now, notice something in these verses here as you look at that. Keep those up there, Alexis. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, that mountain. And then he sat down. Don't skip over it. Once Jesus gets to the spot on the mountain where he's going to teach him from, it says that he sat down and what happened? His disciples, his followers came to him. No longer just the crowds. His disciples are coming now. All right? They came to him. Why is this significant? For two reasons. Write these down. Ready? Number one. Because it shows who his teaching is going to be primarily for. The Beatitudes. Who are they primarily for? His disciples. What's a disciple? Let's break it down. Make it nice and clear. Okay? Disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ who is committed to him in both belief and practice. I believe what God's word says and that is shown through my life increasingly. That's a disciple. It's not someone who just knows about Jesus and says, maybe I believe him, maybe I... No, 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 no. Committed in both belief and practice and was yielded, this is key, was yielded to his authority over their lives. It's not for the general public, but for his followers to learn how they were to live and the character they were to have. That's who he's preaching to right now, his disciples. Now today, who's the disciples? Every Christian. Every true Christian, every true disciple of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that that shows. His disciples came to him, but notice what else this shows. When it says he sat down, do you know what that's a picture of? It shows his authority. It shows the authority of Jesus Christ. See, in Judaism, sitting was the teaching posture of the rabbi or teacher when he was giving his most official teaching. When the rabbi, when the teacher was about to say something seriously that carried a lot of weight, he sat down. He sat down. Okay, I was thinking about you know, sitting down today, but then I couldn't see three quarters of you. All right, But here's the reality. Jesus was on a mountain. I'm not. Okay, but he sits down because that's the authority. He's giving them a sign of authority. All right, most official teaching. It was the posture of one who was teaching with full authority and indicated that his teaching was of central and official importance. No wonder Jesus is about to teach on the heart. It's the central and official importance. It carries the greatest weight in his teaching right now. 
Love that because what you put first, loved ones, is always going to order the rest. You're going to hear that many times throughout this series. What you put first is going to order the rest. See, but not only this, but when it goes on to say in verse 2, it says he opened his mouth and taught them. When it says that, it describes this in great detail to show that what was about to be said was not just some random collection of thoughts. So like Jesus, hey, I think I'll talk to all these people who are following me here. Maybe I'll just go sit up, bring them up on a mountain. I'll just speak whatever comes to mind. No. When it says he opened his mouth, the Greek there implies this. Weighty, solemn, and grave importance that is coming. Weighty, solemn, and grave importance. Why? Why would, why would Matthew emphasize this? Because he was about to teach them the authority of God's word. He wasn't about to give them some TED talk, okay? Let's just shoot it off. A couple of random thoughts here. He's teaching with full authority of God's word. That's why we can't skip over the details. When you see details, hey, loved ones, here, discipleship in our Bible reading. When you see details like that penned by the Holy Spirit in scripture, pay attention. There's a reason for that. Right? He's giving the picture of their authority. Now, now, here's a picture just to kind of get our heads around this. So here he is teaching. Here's Jesus teaching the disciples. Now, as you look at that picture, I want you to ask yourself, why would Jesus preach this way? I mean, why would the Holy Spirit inspire Matthew to write in such detail the description of what's happening here before Jesus even opened his mouth? Why would he go into such detail for us to show the authority that Jesus was about to speak with? I love how Elizabeth Elliot put this. I was so blessed by this this week. You'll see it on the screen. She says this. Until the will and the affections are brought under the authority of Christ, we have not begun to understand, let alone accept his lordship. Let's say it again. Until the will and affections are brought under the authority of Christ, we have not begun to understand, let alone accept his lordship. Jesus is positioning himself here to say, I have the authority, the authority of God. Let's get under it, loved ones. This is not just some random teacher. This is not just some random thought. This is God Almighty himself incarnate speaking. The authority of God's word. See, and here's why this is so important. Because without a right recognition of Christ as Lord, guess what? There is no submission to him as Lord. Without a right recognition of Christ as Lord, there is no submission to him as Lord. Without a right recognition of Christ as Lord over your finances, you're not submitting to him as Lord over your finances. Over your children, you're not submitting your parenting to him. Without a right recognition of Christ as Lord and authority in your job, you're not submitting your work to him. Your marriage, same thing. That's why he has to start here and why Matthew pens that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. See, without submission to him, there is no power from him. You can't do the rest if we don't recognize that he's the authority. Without submitting to his authority, there's no power to him because we think we're the authority. Or we try to find the authority in other things that aren't authority. There's no power from him if there's no submission to him. And if there's no power from him, there's no imitation of him. If there's no power from Christ, there's no imitation of Christ. And that is what we as Christians are called to imitate. Ephesians 5.1. 
The truth is this. Our recognition of him fuels our response of him. That's it. Are you recognizing Christ as that authority over your life? Every part. Every part, loved ones. Your schooling, your job, your marriage, your entertainment choices, what you're looking at on the internet when no one's watching. Is Christ the authority over your life right there? It changes everything. A right recognition fuels a right response. Who has the authority? Are you living with an increasing recognition of Christ's authority in your life that what his word says is the final say? Does his word, hey loved one, just ask. Just take it before the Lord. Is his word giving the final say right now in what you are facing? Does his word have the final say in your marriage? Does it have the final say in how you approach school? Does it have the final say in the decisions that you need to make? The timing that you think you need to make them in. Is his word the final say? What areas or area are you just not submitting to him in? What area do you need to bring under his authority today? What's out of order, loved ones? I was so convicted with that this week. I'm preaching to myself right now. What area is out of order? You say, well, wait a second, that's a big statement. How, what do you mean Jesus has all authority? Don't take my word for it, let's take his. Let's back that up with this. Matthew 28, 18, you'll see it on the screen. Jesus says this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Saying to his disciples, all authority. That means I've got authority in every situation that will ever happen. It's not like, oh, well, there's this going on. I don't think Jesus anticipated that. Oh, he anticipated it. And he even came to earth so he could live it and rise over it. Give us victory over it. The truth is this. The authority of Christ as Lord and our ultimate authority is well established. It's well established. The question is this, church. The question is this. Is your recognition of his authority and your yielding to it in all areas of your life? Are you recognizing his authority? It's already there. The question is, are you recognizing it and submitting to it? You know, we can't just say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll yield or submit in this area, but not over here. Don't ask me to do this. I'm doing my own thing here. Really? That's not, hey, loved ones in love, I just say, it's not going to go well. It's just not going to go well. You say, yeah, but I, Jesus, and he's a killjoy. Really? It's because you haven't experienced him. Okay? Does he have authority that you're coming under? See, to grow in godly character, this is where it has to start, loved ones. If we're trying to do our own thing, it's not going to happen. To grow in godly character, you must live with increasing recognition of Christ's authority. And when I recognize and submit to Christ's authority, I begin to live, point number two, with increasing humility before Christ. Here's the beautiful outflow of recognizing Christ's authority over our lives. We start to live with humility before him in that. Look what happens, verse two and three. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus begins his sermon, notice this, notice how he begins his sermon. He's not beginning his sermon with a command or a threat. That's what the people were used to. 
That's what the Pharisees were giving them for the last 400 years in the Dark Ages. That's what they were used to and expecting. No, 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 no. He gives them an affirmation. He says, you're blessed. And this was totally radical for this time. Jesus, what, what Jesus is doing right here in that one word, he's launching an assault against the legalism of the Pharisees. Why? Because the true kingdom of God was breaking through. Amen? The true kingdom of God is breaking through and he's launching an assault against the legalistic, throw the yoke on tendency of the Pharisees, heaping unbiblical expectations on the people who desired to please God. And Jesus comes in not with another command, he comes in with an affirmation. Blessed, radical, different. The word blessed there, okay, we're gonna camp on this for a few minutes because we're gonna see a lot in this series. The word blessed there is this. The Greek word is makarios. Makarios, M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S, makarios. Now, we have to realize something here. That is such a loaded word. There is actually no English word that fully captures the meaning of it. I mean, how do you, hey, I don't know. I used to be an English teacher, but I haven't done that for a little bit. But like, think about this. Think about this. How do you honestly fully capture the blessing of God in its entirety in one word? Good luck. Right? Good luck. How do you even encapsulate that? We're talking about eternal blessing in one word, really? But let's take a stab at it. Here's what the Greek word means for makarios. It means this, the Greek word for blessed. It, its basic meaning is this, happy, spiritually prosperous, getting better, or envied. Envied? What? Happy, spiritually prosperous, or envied. That's what that loaded word blessed means right there. It describes the state of a believer who is in an enviable position from receiving God's provisions or favor as a result of their obedience to him. He's in an enviable position. Blessed are you in an enviable position. Happy are you in an enviable position when you are what? Poor spirit. What's all that about? God extending his benefits to them. This is not just, this word blessed is not just describing some temporary feeling of fleeting happiness. Okay? It goes way, way beyond that. It is a continuous state of well being or being in a good place in your relationship with God, which other people ought want to have. That's why you're envied. You're blessed when you're in this place. I love how Warren Wearsby said it this way. Blessed is an inner... Get this, get this. See how otherworldly this is? That word blessed is an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that does not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. Wow. Talk about otherworldly. How often when we pray, it's, Lord, bless me with this provision. Bless me with the finances. Bless me with a spouse. Bless me with a house. All these other circumstances. Loved ones, there's nothing wrong in asking for a spouse. There's nothing wrong in asking for money. That stuff can be taken away. This is an inner satisfaction Jesus is talking about that can't be taken away because its satisfaction is in Jesus Christ alone. Unreal. I just so rocked out with this this week. And the first beatitude that leads to the place of blessing, this continuous blessing from God's approval, is when the believer is poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Now, what does that mean? 
The Greek means this, spiritually poor. You're spiritually poor. What does that mean? It's the place of recognition of one's spiritual bankruptcy and complete helplessness before God. It's the place of recognition. Most people don't get to this place. And we'll see why in just a little bit. It's the place of recognition of one's spiritual bankruptcy and complete helplessness before God. The picture here where, that Jesus uses for poor in spirit is this, to be helpless as a beggar and totally dependent on the Lord. It is literally the opposite of self-sufficiency. Ouch. Ouch. Anyone else? Ouch. Right? It's literally the opposite of self-sufficiency. It's the picture of a beggar, completely helpless, totally dependent on the Lord. Hey, question. Is this our notion of what it means today to be blessed by God? How many times do we say, bless you? (laughs) Okay. Let's get an idea of what we're actually saying when we say that. Is this our notion of what it means to be blessed by God? Jesus turns it on its head. The resulting, it is the resulting posture of the heart that is in deep humility. Everyone say humility with me. Humility, that's gonna be a key word. A deep humility in the recognition of one's spiritual need and that one cannot do any spiritual good or have any spiritual merit before God. You can't earn it, you can't fashion it. You literally have nothing of any spiritual good before him. You and I literally have no spiritual good before the Lord, if not for him. We can't earn and say, and somehow live a good life. We're so, so many people are under this delusion that we can somehow live this good life, and as long as I'm not as bad as that person, God's going to look favorably on me. Doesn't work like that, loved ones. You can't earn your way to heaven. Let's just put that out there. It doesn't exist. How do you know that? Because right out of the gate here, the first thing Jesus preaches in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who does the kingdom of heaven go to? The humble. The one who knows they're broken and in desperate need of the Lord and isn't trying to do it themselves and rebelling against him and hardening their heart, saying, I don't need that. They don't walk in pride and self-reliance or self-confidence. They recognize they need God's help. Notice, notice this. Jesus doesn't do random. Everything's in order. The first beatitude Jesus focuses on is humility. Why? It's where everything has to start. It's where everything has to start, loved ones. And what we will see is that all of the beatitudes, here's a really cool thing about the beatitudes you'll see as we go along. Every one of them grows out of another. So the, the one that's coming after it grows out of the one that was before it. All right? And so you're going to see this building and building throughout the series. All right? The, the one before is the foundation of the one that follows it. So of course Jesus starts with the need for humility in the recognition that apart from him we can do nothing. Why? Because James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Remember how I've used this illustration before? I'll use it again. You see a picture of a waterfall. Where does water always flow to? The lowest place. He has to start. God opposes the proud. If we don't get this part, he's opposing every other step we try to take. Not out of a desire to condemn us, but out of a desire to rescue us. 
out of a desire to rescue. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord that at the due time he will lift you up. He will lift you up. I love how J.C. Ryle says this. Humility is the very first letter in the alphabet of Christianity. I love that. We must begin low if we want to see him high. We must begin low if we want to see him high. Hey, loved ones, if I could summarize humility, it would be this. Point one, the way up is down. You see this on our leadership team all the time. We say, get low and stay there. We see God building his church. Hey, loved ones, get low. Get low fast and stay there, Ray. Get low. It's not you doing it. The way up is down. Radical. Absolutely. Isn't that not radical to the world around us? Look around today. Is this humility, the envied posture? We talked about that term, envy. Is this the envied posture that's promoted in our world today? Just think about that. Poor in spirit. Humility. Is this this the one that's looked upon as being the greatest place of blessing? Answer the question. And all God's people said, no. Not at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's the very thing this world is in rebellion against. Worldly blessedness doesn't come through poor in spirit. Worldly blessedness comes through being independent. What do you mean being dependent? You have to understand, loved ones, you and I were never made to be autonomous from the Lord. What do you mean? Worldly blessing comes from being dependent on yourself, not the Lord. What do you mean, like a beggar? Are you kidding me? Power and pride are your greatest inheritance. Finances, provision, possession, they're your greatest. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. You'll see it on the screen. Poor in spirit is ultimately a man's attitude towards himself. This is something which is not only admired by the world, it is despised by it. You will never find a greater antithesis to the worldly spirit and outlook than that which you find in this verse. What emphasis the world places on its belief in self-reliance, self-confidence, and self-expression. Look at its literature. If you want to get on in this world, it says, believe in yourself. Hey, parents, you want to wreck your kids? Tell them to believe in themselves. The idea, that idea is absolutely controlling the life of men. Now in this verse, we are confronted by something which is in utter and absolute contrast to that. And it's tragic to see how people view this kind of statement. Just believe in yourself. Just try harder. You'll get there. No, you won't. It's impossible. Isaiah 6, you say, how do you know this? That's a sobering word. Isaiah 66, 2 says this. God says this. This is upon whom I will look, who my blessing will be upon. He who has a humble and contrite heart and what? Trembles at my word. That's who I'm looking at. That's who my blessing will be upon. Who has a humble and contrite heart and trembles at the words. And notice, notice, loved ones, the Beatitudes not only contain the qualities or characteristics that Christ instructs, the poor beast, poor in spirit, but he also gives us a promise attached to each one of the blessing that flows from each. This is the reason why we are blessed. 
I love this. And for the beatitude of humility here in verse three, the promise or blessing is nothing less. What's the, what's the promise blessing of humility? Nothing less than the kingdom of heaven itself. You think humility is a big deal to God? Look at what he says in verse three. And he, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The inheritance of heaven. What's the Greek for kingdom of heaven? The rule of Christ in one's heart right now through a personal relationship with him and the promise of an eternal life with him in the kingdom of heaven for eternity. And in essence, we can embrace in part right now the eternal inheritance that we will receive in full when we see Christ Jesus face to face. If I could sum that up, I'd say this. Poverty of spirit is always the prerequisite to the inheritance of heaven. Poverty of spirit is always the prerequisite to the inheritance of heaven. It's saying, you're God and I'm not. You have authority and I don't. That's the prerequisite to the inheritance of heaven. This is upon whom God will look. Not one who's puffed up in pride. God will not work through the proud. He will oppose them to rescue them. So, question. Are you walking in increasing humility before the Lord? Are you walking with increasing humility? You know what I would say? You say, well, how do I tell? Here's a good one. Ask him. Lord, where am I walking in pride right now? Where am I walking in depending on my own authority and not yours? And a good litmus is just look at our prayer lives. Are we praying to be more poor in spirit? When has that hit our list of our prayers recently? Lord, give me humility. Make me humble. Are you asking the Lord to help you be poor in spirit, living with an increasing recognition of your complete spiritual bankruptcy before him? Where do you know you need to get low before him and come under his authority? Maybe it's with your agenda. Maybe it's with your spouse or with your children. Maybe it's with the priorities that you set. Maybe it's the complaining attitude that needs to go or the negativity. Maybe it's the authority of possessions that is taking over. And you may be sitting there saying this, well, this is impossible. It's so discouraging. I fail so much at this stuff. I try to come under God's authority. It's so tempting to go back there. It's so tempting. Loved ones, I'm right with you. I'm literally right with you on this. But here is the great gospel truth that I was so refreshed in this week, and I pray you would be as well. God will never command from us what he's not willing to do in us. Did you get that? Hear that, hear that today. God will never command from us what he's not willing to do in us first. But we gotta humble ourselves and say, Lord, I'm yours. Give me your power. Give me your way. Give me your strength. And he says, yes, to that I will look. 100% of the time, God will bless humility always, always, always. Because This is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to live a perfect life, never sin once, to face every temptation you and I have faced, are facing, or will ever face. And by the grace and power of God in him, being fully man, fully God, he overcame it. He overcame it, he never sinned once. And he was nailed to a cross, took the wrath of God, and was buried, and rose again three days later, victorious over death, over sin for all time. And now in him, it's his power living in us by the Holy Spirit that gives us victory, amen? Amen, he will never command us to do something he's not willing to do in us first. 
Be encouraged, loved one. Be encouraged, but will you humble yourself to receive it under his authority? To grow in godly character, I must live with increasing recognition of Christ's authority. With increasing humility before Christ, and from that, here's our last point for the day. We recognize Christ's authority, we humble ourselves under it, here's what happens. We're able to live with increasing repentance towards Christ. We are able to live with increasing repentance towards Christ. Look at verse 4. Jesus goes on to say this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus now gives the second beatitude of the character of the true believer, which is this, to live with increasing mourning over sin. Mourning over sin. What's that Greek word mean for mourn? What does, what does that mean? It means this. Here it is. To experience deep grief, sorrow, or lament. To experience a deep grief, sorrow, or lament over one's sin against the Lord. See, mourning, loved ones, is the outflow of one's humility before the Lord, which leads a person to repentance. Now, what is repentance? Let's just make sure we're all clear on that. We hear that a lot in Christianese. I want to make sure we're clear on what the definition is. It means this. Repentance is this. Seeing our sin for what, how, for what it is, how God sees it, as an offense against him, and turning away from it, and turning towards him. We see our sin, how God sees it, as an offense against him. It's not a light thing. Now remember, remember, the Beatitudes build on each other, right? No humility, no sorrow. See what Jesus does here. No humility before God. No sorrow in our sin against him. Pride never leads to sorrow, godly sorrow, to produce repentance. No sorrow, no repentance. No wonder why there's such little genuine repentance of sin, loved ones. We love our pride too much. That's why we make excuses for our sin. Yeah, well, I lost my, my temper and I was impatient because if that person had just... A... Bro, you lost your temper. Just get low. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Humble yourself right there. Don't make excuses. Ask, repent of that. Ask forgiveness and keep going. Yeah, but if my spouse would just change, then our marriage would be... Really, really, bro? It's time to get low. It's time to get low. Yeah, well, when I, when I, when I get the GPA that I'm after and I'm successful, then I'll get low before... The, no, 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 no. You've reversed that, loved ones. It's time to get low first. The way up is down. Then I'll make God a priority. No. Careful, careful, loved ones. Mourning is an overflow of one's humility before the Lord. But, and look at this, look at this. This grief leads them to repentance and you will receive the comfort, healing, and forgiveness of sin that Christ promises to give us. What does the comforted mean there? Verse 4. They shall be comforted. It's this. Oh, look at this picture. Just listen to this. To come to one's aid. To come alongside. To console, to strengthen, and to encourage. That's what's in that word comfort. It's not some immediate, hey, I'll pet your, pet your hand for a little bit. I'll give you a pat on the back, a little comfort. He's, the Holy Spirit is coming alongside of you. As soon as there's repentance, he's like, yes, 
I will strengthen you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. I will comfort you. Is our world not crying out for this comfort? Where do you think that comes from? It's an eternal longing. It's an eternal longing. Notice Jesus promises that those who have a deep sorrow over their sin, which leads them to repentance, they will experience, look at this, comfort, not condemnation. See that? Awesome. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, loved ones. Hey, 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 eyes up. Genuine repentance, know this, write this down. Genuine repentance always leads to God's comfort, not God's condemnation. Done deal. Genuine repentance always leads to God's comfort, not his condemnation. Get low, fast. Turn away from that sin, confess it to the Lord, and he will bring his comfort every time. I love how 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this. It says this, for godly grief, this is what Jesus is talking about here, those who mourn over their sin, the sorrow, produces repentance that leads to salvation, look at this, without regret. How much of our world is living in regret today? Without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Today, we live in a world that's losing its ability to grieve over sin. We live in a world that has a fear of anyone or anything but God. And I am sobered to say that this is happening in the church as well. Those claiming the name of Christ in the increasing prideful pursuit of self-gratification and the absence of living with godly grief, mourning over the sin that is in our lives and in this world. And not only the sin itself, the destruction that it causes. How often are we so quick to just change the channel when we see what's going on? Pretend like it's not happening. How often are we making excuses for that in our own lives? We take a lighthearted attitude towards our sin, make excuses for it, and refuse to repent of it. Loved ones, Jesus Christ is calling his church back to repentance. If we want to see the comfort of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, it starts with humility leading to repentance. He's calling us back. Charles Spurgeon said this so pointedly. You'll see it on the screen. He says this, Let a man once feel sin for half an hour. Just really feel its tortures And I warrant you, he would prefer to dwell in a pit of snakes than to live with his sins. If you can look on sin without sorrow, then you have not looked on Christ. That's such a sobering word, and it's so true. I mean, look around us, loved ones. Even look at our own lives this past week. I gotta look at myself. How much of the sorrow that we feel, quote-unquote, over our sin is about the fact that we got caught in it or have consequences from it, rather than grieving that we've offended a holy God, which would lead us to repentance as we humble ourselves before him. Where's our sorrow really at? That, oh, I had to suffer a consequence, I didn't get dessert tonight if I'm one of my kids. Is that why I want to repent so I can get it? Or is it because I've offended a holy God who gave his life for me and loves me? and desires me to know his comfort. No wonder why so much of this world is broken and crying out for healing, yet unable to find it. How much of the world is living with regret under condemnation? When Jesus says there's no condemnation, there's comfort waiting on the other side of repentance. There's comfort every time. There's no repentance in the world. Hey, loved ones, just as a church, where's our anguish over sin? Where's our anguish over sin? 
And what it does to our families, parents, what it does to our children, what it does to our coworkers, what it does to the church. Gossip and slander and all of this. Where, where's our anguish over that? Are we really seeing and feeling the destructive influence of that? Or are we taking a lighthearted approach and saying, if he does what I want, then I won't be this way? Really, really? The impact of it on our nation. Look at what happened in Florida this week. Are we, are we feeling the sorrow of that? Are we making excuses? So how about you? How about me? Are you living with godly grief over the sin that is in your life? Or are you rationalizing it, minimizing it, and are more grieved over the fact of the consequences of your sin rather than that you've sinned against the Lord himself? Question, where is the Lord calling you to repentance today? And if he's calling you to repentance, he's calling you to his comfort. He's trying to rescue you out from that condemnation. Maybe it's in the lust that we live our lives with and rationalize it. Oh, it's just a look at a billboard. It's just a look at someone in a, in a swimsuit. Really? Maybe it's in the pride we just keep walking, the self-reliance we live on our strength, our time, our way for things. Maybe it's in the jokes that we laugh at or tell. Laughing at things that matter to the Lord. If it matters to God, loved ones, as the church, it has to matter to us. Rationalizing sin is not a big deal. I love how Charles Spurgeon said this. This is our last quote you'll see up here today. The holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains in him. Yes. The holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains in him. Why? Why? Because as we repent of our sin, the Comforter himself, the Holy Spirit, who lives in every true believer, comes to our aid, replaces our guilt with his joy, our weariness with his strength, our brokenness with his healing, and our sin with his righteousness. This is why the repenting heart is the victorious heart. The repenting heart is the victorious heart. Loved ones, this is what God does when he brings his comfort. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And you may say here saying this, why does Jesus start off with this? Why does he start, why does he got to be a killjoy focusing on all the sin stuff? Here's why. Tom Schreiner said this, the Lord wants us to see our great sin so we understand how great our salvation really is. Yes. The Lord wants us to see how great our sin is so that we can see how great our salvation is. Where does that need to happen for you today? Where do you need to see again how great your salvation is and the greatness of sin? And maybe you're here and your first step is to recognize the authority of Christ over your life. Humble yourself before him and repent of your sin and confess him as your Lord and Savior. Loved ones, eyes up here. This is where everything starts. It's where everything starts and it can happen for you today. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not based on your works. It's not based on you earning everything, your self-reliance. It is based on the gift of grace of God so that no one can boast. God's salvation realize is an act of grace for your life. Will you respond to that today? And if you have, let me ask you this, brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers, here's our challenge today. Are you growing in godly character 
by living with an increasing recognition of Christ's authority over your life in each area. Just ask him, where am I not under your authority right now? Is it leading to an increasing humility before him? And is it resulting in increasing repentance towards him? What's your next step, loved ones? Let's pray. Father, the truth contained in these four verses is enough to last a lifetime. As I go through this again, I'm just, I'm weighted by the flippancy with which I approach sin. And how my heart wants to be so prideful and self-reliant and independent That God, you say, blessed are you when you are poor of spirit. Blessed are you when you mourn over your sin. You will be comforted. You will inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is upon whom you will look. So Father, I pray right now as your spirit is at work, Lord, you would be moving in every single person's heart here to say, I need that area. I need that area. Surrender to me. Are you still gonna walk in that sin? It's time to repent. My comfort is at stake. I've promised you my comfort, not condemnation. Come and taste and see the Lord is good. May it be so today. Those who are here and maybe they've never confessed you as their Lord and Savior, I pray, God, nothing less than today be the day of their salvation. God, that they would see there is inheritance waiting for them, one that this world will never give them. And one day it will be too late to seek you for that. And so, Father, I pray today would be that day. May it be so. And may as we respond now in this song, I pray the cry of our heart would be, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. I need your authority over my life. I need your humility in me growing, and I need repentance towards you. Lord, I need you. May it be so in Jesus' name.